Whereas you heard, I do have a favorite book, and that book is Ecclesiastes. I firmly believe that if we would apply the words found in this book, that we would have a better life, that we would just have a better moral life. We would have greater shalom. We would have greater peace. I can't see any downsides. So what do we know about Ecclesiastes? Or it's believed by the majority that it was written by King Solomon. It's also believed that by many, as I also agree with, that it was probably written near the end of his life. Now, who is King Solomon? Just a few words about King Solomon. He was the son of King David also, and, and, and uh, the third king over the nation of Israel after King Saul and King David, of course. We know that Solomon began his reign as a humbled man. He was a meek man. In fact, we know that he prayed to Yahweh, and he asked Yahweh for wisdom so that Yahweh would guide him as king. As a result, we know that Yahweh blessed this man with incredible wisdom. But we also know that he made a few fatal mistakes throughout his reign, including marrying many foreign or unbelieving women. Scripture says that he married 700 wives and 300 concubines. I can't imagine. You know, I love my wife dearly. I do. She's the world to me. But I don't think I'd want more than one. As we uh, see in 1 Kings 11, it says that when he was old, he forsook Yahweh in many ways. So I want to read part of that to shed some light on who Solomon was, maybe near the end. It says that, for it came to pass when Solomon was old, and I think there's an importance to recognize that many of these things happened when he was old. When he was old, he lost, he was losing his discretion, I believe. That his wives turned away his heart after other mighty ones, and his heart was not perfect with Yahweh his Elohim, as was the heart of David his father. <clears throat> and for Solomon went after Asherah, the Elohim of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and went not fully after Yahweh, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build on a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burned incense and sacrificed unto their mighty ones. <clears throat> so we see here again that when Solomon was old, that his heart was pulled away by these foreign or strange women. It says here that his heart was not perfect, as the heart of his father was, King David. And as a side note, we know that David also made his mistakes, some big ones. David made some really big mistakes, but the difference is David had a unique relationship with Yahweh. He had a heart after Yahweh's own. He loved Yahweh, and Yahweh loved him, and he was completely devoted to him. Even Again, he fell short in big ways. He's, his love for Yahweh never wavered. Now, as we see here, though, in 1 Kings, this was not the case with his son, King Solomon. When he was old, he not only condoned, but I believe likely engaged in some of this worship. We see here that he even allowed the worship of Molech. Now, the worship of Molech included 
sacrificing their children to this deity. It was especially abominable in the eyes of Yahweh. In many ways, there's not a greater dichotomy, there's not a greater contradiction than this man, King Solomon. Again, he started off humbled. He began with right intentions. He prayed to Yahweh. He was given incredible wisdom. But we find that in the end, that wisdom was not enough. It's kind of um, ironic today in the Bible study, we were talking about King Solomon. And one of the observations I made then and I'll make now is wisdom alone is not enough. Solomon had an incredible amount of wisdom, but we see here that he still compromised. He still compromised. And that compromise led to a pulling away near the end of Solomon's life. So we can have all the wisdom in the world, but if we don't obey the one we worship, that wisdom will do us no good. I want to begin today with our lessons in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. The New RSB says, Vanity is vanity, saith the preacher, all vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We've all heard that. We're familiar with it. Now, the NIV says something similar. It says, meaningless, meaningless, says a teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So what does Solomon mean here when he says vanity is vanities, all is vanity? Whereas we see here from the NIV, everything is meaningless. What does he mean here? As a young person, this can be hard to relate to. But as we get older, as we get more years, we realize the meaning of this passage, and that is life is short. Life is short. You look at life, you look at the activities of life, life is short. It goes by very quickly, and I believe that's what Solomon means here when he's referring to vanity of vanities. All is vanity. There's a meaningless aspect of life, and that is, again, life is short. Days before the passing of Brother Darrell, I was over talking to him in his living room, and um, we were talking about life, and he uh, shared that he was 85 years old, I believe, and he uh, shared that those 85 years went by very quickly. Those 85 years went by very quickly. I suspect Sister Nancy would share the same if she could, that her years went by very quickly. Why is this lesson important? It's important because it keeps life in perspective. It's important that we understand, again, the vanity of life, the meaningless of life. So many of us go through life focused on things that really have no value. Many of us are guilty of this. We're all guilty of this to some extent, more, some more than others. Maybe it's owning a large home or an expensive vehicle, or maybe it's becoming famous or having prestige, and that's our goal within this life, to accomplish these great things. Well, there's nothing wrong with owning a large home. Well, there's nothing wrong with owning an expensive vehicle. Well, there's nothing wrong with even having prestige or fame. That's not our focus. It should not be our focus. Let me tell you what will never pass away. What will never pass away is a promise that we have through the one we worship. That is the one thing within this life and the next life that will never pass away. It's that promise of everlasting life within Yahweh's kingdom. And again, I believe that this is what Solomon is comparing to when he says vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He recognized that when we compare this life to the next, 
that everything in this life is meaningless, that there's really no value in this life, not substantial value, not when compared to the promise of what lies ahead. That is the value. That is the focus. And again, that is why I believe he says here, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything we know will someday pass away, including those we love. They too someday will pass away. Does this mean, though, that we should not enjoy this life? Does this mean that we can't enjoy what we have? No, it doesn't mean that. Ecclesiastes, we find that we're to enjoy life. Ecclesiastes 9.9 says this, enjoy life with your wife, with whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that Elohim has given you under the sun. So we find a message, and that is that even though life is meaningless, comparatively, that we should still enjoy life, that we should still enjoy life, the loved ones we have within this life. We should enjoy the days that we have on this earth, but do so without forgetting the real value of what lies ahead. So that's a lesson here we find within Ecclesiastes. We find that when we compare this life to the next life, that everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. That there is no value, not real value. The real value will occur at the resurrection and what happens after. I want to move on now to our second lesson. That is Ecclesiastes 3 beginning in verse 1, and that is something about a season, that there's a season for everything. It says, to everything there is a season, and to a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away Stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend. And a time to sow and a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What lesson do we find here? We see that there's a season for every purpose within this life. As an example, Solomon speaks here about there there being a season or a time to weep. Also a season and a time to laugh and to mourn and even to dance. Although for me, that only includes weddings, by the way. I don't do a lot of dancing myself. The word season here refers to different times or events of our lives. It comes from the Hebrew 8th. The King James translates this word as Time, 257 times. Season, 16 times. Wind, 7 times, always 4 times. Evening, tide, 2 times. And miscellaneous, 10 times. The Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew Lexicon defines this word as time of an event. Time of an event. We find here that there are different times or events within our lives. But that includes even as we are, when we are young and as we grow older, And those times differ depending on age and depending on what is occurring. Depending on those seasons, certain things may or may not be important or may not even be appropriate. When we see the birth of a new child, this is a season to be happy and to rejoice. When we see a season of someone losing someone close to us, that's a season of mourning. 
Life is all about different seasons, different times, different events. Sometimes life goes well, seasons go well, sometimes seasons do not. As a believer, though, it's important that we understand that we are able and must navigate through the seasons of life. Whatever it is, whether, again, it's a time to dance, whether it's a time to mourn, a time to rejoice, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, that as believers, we need to have the discretion and wisdom to understand what season we're in and apply their faith and devotion or put to the test. It's real easy when things are going great, but when we come across a challenge or a trial, or then that is an obstacle, and we must have, again, the perseverance and the courage and the strength to overcome that season. And believe me, there will be seasons when our faith and devotion are tried. If you live any years at all, you will have eventually trials. You will have obstacles and and challenges that you must overcome. This is why it's important that we have a strong foundation. This is why it's important that we have a strong faith. That when we come across seasons that are difficult, that are hard, that bring hardship, that we have the endurance to continue on. The measure of a person is not found in good times. The measure of a person is not found in good times. The measure of a person is found in in hard times, in challenging times, in times of persecution, in times of tribulation. That's when a person's character is defined. So when we come across seasons of trial and persecution, I would encourage you to, to, uh, number one, realize the season you're in. And number two, just don't give up. Never give up. As Joshua shared in the Olivet Prophecy, it says those who overcome, those who endure to the end, he says, they will be the ones who will be saved. We must endure to the end. And again, whatever season we come across, we must have the, the courage, the strength, the conviction, the faith to hold firm and never give up. No matter what season we're in, it's important that we overcome. I want to move on now to our next lesson, and that's Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. We're talking about this also in the Bible study. They were trying to take all my content, by the way, in the Bible study today. I had to stop a few people. I said, no, no, let's not touch on this quite yet. Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 11, although I'm guilty of reading this one within the Bible study, so maybe I should be... Uh, giving myself a lecture. Anyway, Ecclesiastes 5, 10 through 12, it says, Whosoever or whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless or vanity. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? We know people like that, I'm sure. People who are wealthy, people who have amassed great wealth and they have all these great things and they can look at these great things and that's about all they can do they can look at these great things Solomon continues he says the sleep of a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much but as for the rich their abundance permits them no sleep this topic of money or wealth is crucial I believe as a believer Over the years, I've seen many examples of how money 
has ruined the lives of people I've known. I've seen money ruin friendships. I've seen money ruin assemblies. And I've certainly seen money ruin marriages. Well, there's nothing wrong with money itself. How we view money is crucial. How we view money, how we understand money, how we look upon money. When money is simply viewed as a resource and not our main purpose or mission in life, money is fine. We all need money. We all need to live. We all need to be able to pay our mortgages. We all need to be able to pay for our food. We all need money. Money as a resource is not bad. As long as we view it as a resource, as long as it's not our main focus and our main mission in this life. But if money or wealth ever becomes our focus, we need to take heed to the words we find here. So what is the message from Solomon? Well, the message here is simply this. If money is our main focus in this life, we will never have enough. I'm sure you know examples. You've seen examples of this. People with an abundance, but they're not satisfied. They want more. They're never happy. They want more. I think of people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and ask, when is enough? When is enough? It's amazing. These people are millions or even billions, and they continue to work. They continue down that path. When is enough? With most people of immense wealth, it seems that there is never a level at which they're satisfied. They always want more. And that's precisely what Solomon says. He says, if your focus is money, you will never be satisfied with what you have. Even when it would be nearly impossible for some of these people to spend what they've accrued within a lifetime, they're still not happy. So what's the problem with always wanting more money? Well, the problem is it becomes a distraction. It becomes a distraction from what's important. Matthew 6, verse 24, Yahshua said there, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both Yahweh and money or mammon. It's impossible to have Yahweh and money as our main focus. It can't be done. It can't be done. At some point, we're going to have to decide which one we're going to serve. Which one is going to be our focus? Which one will be our driver? You see, within life, we have to have a driver. We have to have a goal. And what is that goal? Is it money? Is it wealth? Is it abundance? Or is it almighty Yahweh? But we all have to have a goal. There's nothing wrong with money. As long as money is viewed as a resource, as long as it's viewed in a right way. But it should not be our mission. Now, the choice we make may very likely impact our eternal salvation. I've seen it. I've seen it. When we make money our mission in this life, inevitably we will put Yahweh in a back seat. And I, and I can tell you, our Father in heaven will not accept a secondary position. He just won't. So if we put Yahweh in a secondary position because we want more money, we want more prestige, we want more power, we want more and more and more, or we've 
put Yahweh in the back seat, and that's not going to be acceptable. Again, Yahshua said in Matthew 6 that we have to uh, either love the one and, 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 and then despise the other. Now, Paul, 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 6, talks about the love of money. It says, But righteousness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So what lesson do we find here? We find that there is a blessing in being content. There's a blessing in being content. Paul says here that we brought nothing into the world and we will bring nothing out. There is nothing we can bring with us when we pass. There is nothing we can bring with us. It doesn't matter what we've gained within life. We cannot bring anything with us when we die. The fact is the rich and poor go to the grave in the same way. Neither one can bring anything with them. And both of them goes to the grave empty. As we see in the scripture, their spirit returns to Yahweh, their bodies return to the earth, their thoughts perish, and they then wait for the resurrection. Now what does Paul say here about the love of money? He says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's the origin of all kinds of evil. The love of money is a cause for many troubles within this life, including, as we see here, wandering away or forsaking the faith. The love of money can pull us away from the faith because we are more focused on gathering and amassing wealth than we are on pleasing the one we worship. Why do you suppose the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil? Again, the answer is pretty simple. When we love money, we tend to compromise our morals. We tend to compromise or ethics. That's why the love of money is the root of all evil. I think we can say the same thing about power prestige. There's nothing wrong with being in a prestigious position, but if that's our purpose in life, or then there's something wrong with it. Our purpose, our mission should be to please the one we worship, not to have fame, not to have fortune, not to have any of those things. This, again, is why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that whoever loves money has never, has, uh, never has enough. So the lesson here is this. There is nothing, again, wrong with money as long as money doesn't become our focus. Because the moment it becomes our focus, as we see in Ecclesiastes, we don't have any sleep. We have worry unnecessarily because we are focused and we are concerned not on Yahweh's word, not on his truth, but instead on the abundance, on that money. So it's important to keep a perspective. So how do we know if we're guilty of loving money too much? How do we know if we're guilty of loving money too much? If we find ourselves compromising Yahweh's word or what we know to be right for money, where I believe we've crossed the line. If we find ourselves doing what we know to be wrong for some sort of gain, or we've crossed the line, Real-life example is this. If we are willingly, if we willfully choose 
to work on the Sabbath for maybe a promotion, we've crossed the line. That's something I always tell my managers at work, every single one for the last 20 plus years. I begin with the Sabbath. I tell them about the Sabbath because, look, if you don't want me because of the Sabbath, great. I will go somewhere else. Yahweh comes first. He comes first. My uh, manager's talking to me here recently about a possible promotion, and I told him, I said, Yahweh comes first. Or I didn't say Yahweh comes first. I said, the Sabbath comes first. And he says, that's not an issue. And so far, it hasn't been an issue. And I think the reason it's not been an issue is two things. Number one, I'm proactive, and I tell people I have to have the Sabbath off. And they understand, if they want me to work for them, they're going to give me the Sabbath off. This is not something I'm willing to negotiate with. And number two, I think Yahweh's been kind, and Yahweh's been good. But we have to do our part. Anyway, if we're willing to break the Sabbath for some sort of promotion, some sort of gain, we've gone too far. We've gone too far. I'm going to move on now to our next lesson, and that is being able to receive correction. It's a big one. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 5, it says, It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Solomon talks here about the ability of receiving a rebuke or some sort of correction or admonition. Correction goes against human nature, doesn't it? Who likes to be corrected? Who likes to be rebuked? Okay, we have one. You always have one. You have two. Okay, we have a... Okay. So we have a few in here. That's good. That's great, by the way. That's wonderful that you have a willingness and an enjoyment in being rebuked. But normally human nature, this uh, just, doesn't, just doesn't jive with human nature. Human nature opposes this thought of us being rebuked, doesn't want to hear admonition or some sort of correction. It's not uncommon for them to reply with some sort of criticism against the other person. It's just a reflex. Where you say I'm doing something poor here, what about you? Now, as believers, we need to uh, be better than that. As human beings, we stink at receiving correction from others. That's just the bottom line. But as we see here from Solomon, we should view this as a good thing. We should be open to rebuke. We should be open to correction. We should be open to admonition from the wise. And I will emphasize that for just a moment. From the wise, from those who have something of value to share. I'm not interested in a rebuke from those who have no value to share. But certainly from the wise, we need to be open to it. We need to be open to it. So how do we position ourselves to better receive criticism or admonition? This is a big one. Think about it. How do we position ourselves mentally so that we can receive criticism? Or it begins from realizing and accepting the fact that we're all imperfect. I think we all know that, that we're all imperfect. I think we all know that we have room to grow. But for some odd reason, we refuse to accept admonition when that time comes. But we all know that we're all imperfect. We all have room to grow. We must also learn to fight against our human nature to respond negatively 
Again, if they give us some sort of critical response or criticism or admonition, not to quickly respond in a negative way, not in a defensive way. Simply accept it for what they say. Think about it. Consider it. Maybe they're wrong, but be open to it. Be willing to hear it out. We must also learn to, again, fight against our human nature. And most importantly, most importantly, we need to receive correction or admonition with humility. And that's a big one. That's a hard one. Because human nature as it is, is resistant to change and it's proud. But to receive correction, as we find here, we must remove the pride. We must learn to be humbled. We must realize that we're imperfect. And believe me, we're all imperfect. I'm imperfect. You're imperfect. We're all imperfect. We all have room to grow. We all have things we can do better. We all have things we can learn. We all have ways to improve. And we need to recognize that. And when somebody comes to us, especially, as it says here, the wise, you know, those who can those who can give us um, help and and instruction and add to the wisdom we have, we need to be open to it. So what is humility? Just for a moment here, the Cambridge Dictionary defines this as the quality of not being proud because you are aware of your bad qualities. And listen, we all have bad qualities. Every one of us. We all have bad qualities. We all, have, we, we, we all fall short in some way. Scripture says that. Dictionary.com defines humility as, quote, the quality or condition of being humble, modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance and rank. How do we view ourselves? Do we view ourselves as great? Do we view ourselves as inferior? Or do we view ourselves as humbled, as imperfect? as a man or a woman who needs to change? How do we view ourselves? Forbes found an article from Forbes. I like the article. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm going to read the has 13 habits of humble people. I'm not sure if I agree with every single one, but most of them are pretty good. So here's a chart. Hopefully you can read it. So 13 habits of humble people. Number one, they are situationally aware So they're aware of their surroundings and the people they're with. They retain relationships. Well, that's true. I can see that. Is if we're prideful, we're not going to retain relationships. But if we're humble, we're going to retain relationships. They make difficult decisions with ease. They put others first. That's certainly a sign of humility. They listen. How many... No, don't raise your hand, by the way. This is a rhetorical... Just in case you're... But how many here, when someone's talking to you, you're not really listening. You're thinking about how you want to respond. I'm guilty of that sometimes. Maybe I'm the only one in the room. I don't know. But listening, that's that's humility. That's a great, great sign of humility. Curious. They speak their mind. I'm not sure about this one. This one kind of troubles me. They speak their mind. Maybe it is. I'll have to think more about that one there. They take time to say thank you. That's great. Not enough people do that today. Say thank you. Just a simple acknowledgement. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing how far and the impact you can make by simply being friendly. And to acknowledge somebody when they've done something 
well. Say, great job. Great job. Thank you for doing that. They have an abundance mentality. In other words, it's not just about them. They start sentences with you rather than I. We've all heard that one, but it's true. They accept feedback. Well, that's a big one. Kind of what we're talking about here. They accept feedback. They assume responsibility. This does take humility. Because when we make a mistake and somebody brings a mistake to us, the first thing we want to say is, that wasn't our fault. That's not my mistake. Or that's pride. But humility is being willing and able to receive and, and to accept responsibility for a mistake or for anything. And also they ask for help, which I believe also is a sign of humility. So those are the 13 habits of humble people. Does any of these habits stand out for you? Or for me, the uh, three that really stood out was uh, putting others first. It's a very biblical concept. Asking for help. It takes a lot of humility for a lot of people to ask for help. We've all heard the stories about the husband's driving and refusing to ask for direction, although now it's just plug it into your phone and to just go. It's great. And uh, the last one here is that the big one is accepting feedback. Now, regarding putting, putting others first, I want to share a scripture with you. Paul in Philippians 2 said this. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness or humbleness of mind, let each other each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We see in this passage that we should be concerned about the other person, not ourselves. And how often do we do that? Putting others first, that is a sign of humility, and that is a sign in a lesson we find in Scripture. It's a very valuable lesson to put others first. I want to emphasize this next one here, accepting feedback. Here's how Forbes, it, it um, qualifies or describes each one of these, by the way, in the article. If you want to go on, just Forbes, just do a search, Forbes, 13 Habits of Humble People. You can read the whole article. But here's what it said about feedback. It said, humble people are not only receptive to constructive criticism, but actively seek it because they know that feedback is a pathway to improvement. Now think about that for just a moment. This is the same message we find here in Ecclesiastes. The reason it's so important for us to receive a rebuke or an admonition from a wise person is that it makes us a better person. It improves who we are as a person. According to Forbes, though, it's not enough to only be receptive. Notice that? It's not enough to be receptive. It says here that we should be actively pursuing constructive feedback, that we should be actively pursuing admonition, that we should be actively soliciting how we can improve as people. It makes us into better people. But again, for human nature, this is hard. Nobody wants, or let me rephrase that, with the exception of three, nobody wants or loves to hear rebuke or admonition. They just don't. But as believers, we need to get there. As believers, we need to be willing to listen. We need to be willing to hear. We need to be willing to, to, um, to accept it if there's truth to it. Without being negative, without being defensive, and without attacking 
the messenger. I want to move on now to our next lesson. This one's interesting. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 16. I've looked at this many times over the years. I did a little bit of digging, digging on this, and, and um, it's interesting. So it says there, be not righteous over much. Be not righteous over much. Neither make yourself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? So what does Solomon mean here when he says not to be righteous over much? Is it possible to be too righteous? Is it possible to be too wise? Or many believers would say, no, it's not possible to be too righteous. According to Solomon, though, here, he says that being too righteous is, is negative, something we shouldn't do. So what is he speaking about here when he says too righteous? I'm going to share with you two commentaries offering some insight on this. First one is a pulpit commentary, pretty good commentary. It says, be not righteous over much. The exhortation has been variously interpreted to warn against scrupulous observance of ritual and ceremonial religion, or the mistaken piety, which neglects all mundane affairs, or the pharisaical spirit, which is bitter and condemning others who fall short of one's own standards. So for me... When I read this, the word I think of is extreme. We have an extreme view. We also have a pharisaical view. I think the Pharisees would be a very good example here. We know from the word that the Pharisees would add their own rabbinical law. They would create artificial boundaries that Yahweh's word doesn't give. And they also had a lack of love and compassion. We can't be pharisaical. Now, I want to read from the Holocaust commentary. It's kind of short. Actually, just, I took a snippet here, but it says, A caution is against morbid scrupulicity. That's a word, by the way. I had to look it up. Scrupulicity. And over-rigorism. Those are some big words. We find here, again, the concept of, I would say, extremism. Now, what is the meaning here of scrupulicity? Or again, this describes a extreme position. So I want to Wikipedia. Here's what it says, or this is part of it anyway. It says uh, scrupulicity is characterized by a pathological guilt, anxiety about moral or religious issues. Although it can affect non-religious people, it is usually related to religious beliefs. It is a person distressing, dysfunctional, and often un- accompanied by significant impairment in social functioning. It has not been proven to be an actual disorder by medical professionals, though it falls under the anxiety category. It is typically conceptualized as a moral or religious form of obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD. So according to Wikipedia, scrupulicity is a type of moral or religious OCD, which brings anxiety and impacts that person's ability to socialize, to be part of something. You know, over the years, I've seen examples of this in the faith, where they had this type of OCD. They just went beyond where Scripture says, and they weren't able really to socialize or to be fully part of a congregation because of this reason. We know that we suffer from scrupulicity when our sense of righteousness is so great that it causes us anxiety, 
depression, and a separation from other believers that we may view as inferior. I've been in the faith all my life. I've been in the ministry for 25 plus years. I was ordained at 19, and uh, or as an, as, as an elder, I guess, later on, several years after that, but been in the been in the ministry for many, many years. I've seen a lot. I've discussed a lot. And uh, there's a, a few things I've discovered. I want to share some of those with you. So number one, there's no such thing as a perfect believer. I don't have this on the slide, by the way. I'm, I'm seeing phones. No such thing as a perfect believer or assembly. If that's what you're looking for, if that's what you're searching for, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it here. You're not going to find it anywhere. It doesn't exist. Number two, everyone is going, not everyone is going to agree with you or share your view of Scripture. That's just the way it is. And we must accept that if we're going to be part of an assembly. Number three, if you're really going to be part of an assembly, you're going to have to let some things go. Now, I'm not talking about major compromise. We, don't, we try not to do that here. We believe very strongly in upholding Yahweh's word. This is a major compromise. I've found that most often these uh, things that we hold on to so, so tightly are based more on personal preference or bias, not on scripture. Number four, this is a big one. People will disappoint you. They will disappoint you. For me, this is the most challenging part of what I do as a pastor. As, I, as a minister, you're often the focus of people's anger and hostility. And that's just the way it is. Also, there's many people who simply lack civility for those in the ministry. I don't share the scripture often for obvious reasons. But I think it's good to remind 1 Timothy 5 verse 7 says there, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Again, many people have lost civility and concern and respect, and it's important that we do that. Lastly here, to be part of an assembly, you're going to have to have a healthy dose of mercy and compassion for your fellow believers. So those are my observations. I'm sure there's other observations but those are my observations of how we can ensure that we're not righteous over much as we find here. Again, recognizing and showing compassion, showing grace, showing civility, showing respect. Realizing that not everyone is going to agree with us. Realizing that there's going to be differences. Realizing that we may have some very strong opinions. But realizing that those opinions aren't scripture. Not always. Sometimes they are, but not always. There's one more lesson I want to consider now. I'm going to close with this. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. It says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear Elohim and keep his commandments, for this is a whole duty of man. Now, this is an important passage, maybe the most important passage we find in Ecclesiastes. I believe it shows the purpose of mankind, and that is to fear Yahweh, and to keep his commandments. To fear Yahweh and to keep his commandments. Think about the change we would see in the world if every living person simply did what we find here. Think about the positive change 
that we would see from mankind if we would all fear our creator and keep his commandments. We would see what many would call utopia or paradise. We would have no crime. We would have no sin. We would have peace. We would have unity. We would have morality. And we would have righteousness restored to the earth if we simply did this. But as we know, very few, very few, really fear Fear is the one they worship and, they, and keeps the commandments that we find within the word. Solomon says here that this, though, is the whole duty of man. This is the purpose of man. This is what we should be doing as human beings. We should be fearing the one we worship, and we should be keeping his commandments. I want to talk just a moment about fear. What does it mean to fear the one we worship? I'm a really big believer in fear. A lot of people dismiss this. The word fear here comes from the Hebrew yareh, and is a primitive root in the Hebrew language. Strong's defines this word as fear, morally to revere, causatively to frighten. King James translates this word as uh, fear 188 times, afraid 78 times, terrible 23 times, terrible things six times, dreadful five times, Reverence, listen, three times. Fearful, two times. Terrible acts, one time. And miscellaneous, eight times. We see here that this word is most often used in a sense of trepidation or fear. And only three times is reverence. Now, I share this because many will say, and they'll try to make the claim, that no, this really doesn't mean to fear. This really means just to Show reverence, to show respect. That's what it means in the Hebrew. It can mean that. But as we see from the way it's translated, out of over 200 times, three times is reverence. Every other instance, every other instance is fear or afraid or terrible or dreadful or fearful. We are to fear the one we worship. We are to fear our Father in heaven. Paul and Philippians 2.12 says that we are to work out our own salvation. How? He says, in fear and trembling. Now, does trembling give you this notion of reverence? No. Trembling gives me this notion of trepidation. As believers, and he's writing this to believers, as believers, we should fear the one we worship. That doesn't mean necessarily we should be shaking, but we should have a healthy fear for when we do something wrong. It should bring a very um, serious restraint. This makes us into a better person, a more moral person. When we never view the fear of Yahweh and his commandments as something needed, well, then we have chaos. And we see that in the world today, yet nobody fears Yahweh. Nobody's really keeping his commandments. And what do we see in this world? People, they don't even know the difference between a male and a female anymore. You can be a male one day and a female the next day. And then you can go back being a male the next day. There's no fear. There's no righteousness. There's no morality. There's none of that. There's none of that. And why is that? It's because people don't do what we find here. People don't fear Yahweh. And they obviously don't keep his commandments. And if we would do those two things, this world would be utopia. It really would be. This world would be great. If we did these two things, these two 
items here that is just so critical. It's the purpose, the purpose, the whole purpose of mankind. This is what we should all be striving to do, to fear the one we worship and to keep his commandments. So I pray that this message has been a blessing to you. Again, as you all know, Ecclesiastes is my favorite book. I just picked a few lessons out. There's many, many more lessons within this wonderful book. So in closing, I'd like to encourage everyone this week. So I don't have a lot of call for actions, you know, call to do something. I'm going to give you a call of action or action this week. And that is to read Ecclesiastes this week. To read it. It's not very long. It's 12 chapters. You can get through with about an hour. Read, maybe even less. Read Ecclesiastes. Reflect upon the wisdom we find within the book. Believe me, we're going to be better for it. May Yahweh bless you.